This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to Humans of Space, a podcast from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine and hosted by Neve Shaw that looks at the individuals who shape our understanding of the universe and how they got to be where they are today. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skynightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. We're speaking today with Jeff Hoffman, former NASA astronaut and professor in aeronautics and astronautics at MIT in the United States. So, uh, hello, Jeff. How are you? Very. Thank you so much for for joining me on um, on the Humans of Space a podcast. I've been chasing you for a few years now. I think I asked you back in 2017 for an interview, but between one thing and another, I I don't think I was available. And then you, and then um, then we were together on the space studies program, and and unfortunately, then you'd left sight by then. So we finally did it. So thank you very much for joining me today. Well, um, Niav, it's um, you know it's it's a pleasure. We we've we've had contact over the years. We just never actually got to sit down and, and do this. So I'm happy that we can finally do it and uh, you know share some interesting uh, stuff with our listeners. Yeah, no, it's terrific and um, and it's great. And um, we were just talking there before we started recording. You know, I was telling you that this this series is now on the BBC Sky at Night website and you told me a little segue of a story so you know tell me about your experience with the amazing Sir Patrick well, Moore. Uh, you know I um, actually was on the original television Sky at Night with with uh, Patrick Moore Sir Patrick Moore um, both uh, in you know relatively early days and then even towards the end when he was ailing. Uh, what an incredible person I mean I guess he he had the longest continual running show in BBC history, is what what everybody used to say, and um, and he was a I mean he inspired so many people uh, just to stop and look up uh, and see what's up there in the sky, and and it's it's wonderful uh, be a source of inspiration and and he was a real trooper. I mean I remember the last time that that I worked with him, he was already. 
uh, ailing and we actually went down to his home on the south coast and uh, the BBC had set up a television studio basically in his home so that we could record and you know he, he was kind of had a hard time getting around but as soon as you put the microphone in his hand he was the old Patrick Moore and and that's the mark of a real professional yeah you pleasure working with him and, and a real loss when he finally uh, passed away. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's sorely missed. I mean, he inspired so many of us, you know, as a child, for all of us, we would watch that on BBC. Any Anybody interested in space, we, we would watch that. I, I didn't really understand a lot of what I was watching, but his enthusiasm would always make me you know, to, to stay, uh, to stay on and, and keep with them. He was, he was great. Absolutely great. So that's lovely that you met him, Jeff. That's amazing. And and you did that, of course, you spent some time in the University of Leicester and, and are you, are you still connected in some way to the University of Leicester? Well, um, I spent three and a half years continuously at Leicester. After I got my doctorate. Um, I was actually only planning to spend a year, but I I met a very nice woman who eventually became my wife. And oh. instead, of, instead of one year in the UK, I came back to the US three and a half years later with a wife and a 10-week-old 10, 10 son. So that certainly changed my life. And I stayed in contact with the university over the years. While I was an astronaut, I, I made every couple of years, I would come over and, and give a talk about the various flights I had done. Um, and then uh, after I left the astronaut program, and I've, I'm now a professor at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it turned out that the university decided they wanted to put on a short course in human spaceflight and asked me if I would like to teach it. So for about 10 years, I would go over uh, for a couple of weeks every fall and teach them. And unfortunately, my life has become a lot busier with my Mars experiment and, and other things. And I unfortunately couldn't continue to do that. But uh, I still have a lot of friends in Leicester and uh, look forward to getting back there one of these days. That's great. Did you ever visit the Space Center, the National Space Center there? Oh, absolutely. I, hey, I, I cut the ribbon when it was inaugurated. Oh, brilliant. Ago. Yeah, no, I was I was there and... and uh, I've, I've been back there on several occasions. And, and now, of course, they have a big science park and, and really made great progress. It's a, it's a real um, uh, great facility, uh, both for uh, students and, and also for researchers. So it's really, uh, and of course, Leicester is pretty centrally located. So people from all over the country have access to it. And it's, a, it's a really a great asset for education and for research. Yeah, it certainly is. It's it's terrific. Well, I'm delighted that you have this connection already to um, a Sky at Night and uh, and Leicester and everything. So so it's fantastic that that we waited until now because um, you know the, the, this current series is on is on um, is on that website. So so Jeff, um, you know you've had an incredible career and a lot of what this podcast really is about. I love having conversations with people about how they have formed the life that they've had, you know, and it's always really nice to go back to with that conversation to go back to the beginning. So you, um, you grew up in, in New York and, um, I know you, you did your PhD in Harvard. So how did you manage to make that happen? Who were the, who were the people along the way that you would say helped you, um, 
achieve something which is you know which is which is quite quite incredible well, you know rather than rather than attribute it to a person i'd actually like to give thanks to a machine which is the planetarium projector at the new york hayden planetarium because uh, my parents i mean they they would take me to a lot of museums and cultural events in new york city you know as i was growing up and there was something about the planetarium which just fascinated me. Uh, you know, they had this big stereopticon projector. I mean, it was the old fashioned one with analog optics. And it, nowadays they have digital projectors, which are fantastic, but it doesn't, they don't have that science fiction look that the old uh, Hayden planetarium projector had. And somehow there was something about the stars and of course you couldn't see very many stars from New York city, but I learned all the constellations. And um, I remember my dad took me to, they had an orrery with, where you could look at the motion of the planets and, and explain to me retrograde motion of, of the planets. And I, I was just always fascinated by astronomy at the same time, you know, I was a little boy back in the 1950s before Sputnik was launched, and it was really the birth of the space age. But even before Sputnik, there was a lot of talk about the coming of the space age and the um, you know, newspaper articles, magazines, television shows. And, uh, and then, of course, Sputnik was launched and, and, and everybody got excited about that. And, and then you know, who was going to put the first human in space. And, you know, I remember Yuri Gagarin and Alan Shepard and John Glenn. And of course, like every red-blooded American boy, I, I thought, gee, I'd love to be an astronaut. And of course, back then it wasn't available for girls. Now, luckily, girls could dream of being astronauts as well. But in any case, it, it became apparent pretty soon that all of these astronauts were military pilots, and that was not a career that I aspired to. So although I was always fascinated by the space program, and I followed it very closely, you know, through Mercury, Gemini, the Apollo flights, um, I was in high school and college and university, um, but I pursued my interest in astronomy, and uh, because of my interest in space, it turned out that this was really also, in, in addition to being the early days of human space flight, it was the early days of doing astronomy from space. And that interested me because, I mean, every time you look at the universe in, in new wavelengths, you know, first we could only look at regular light. And then back in the 30s, Carl Jansky discovered there were radio waves coming from the sky. And so radio astronomy was born and, and we had a whole new view of the universe. And then finally, when we had the ability to go up above the atmosphere, we could look at X-rays and gamma rays. And to me, that represented a really exciting opportunity because I knew you know, this was something new. Nobody had ever done this before. And, and so I got interested in X-ray astronomy that's why I came over to the University of Leicester, because they had and, and continue to have a, a world-class X-ray astronomy group. Um, and uh, I spent three and a half years at, at Leicester, went back to MIT, 
um, we had a an X-ray satellite, and uh, we actually had some fascinating discoveries of what we call X-ray bursts, which are thermonuclear explosions on the surface of neutron stars. Uh, again, something completely new and unexpected. So I had a very exciting uh, early scientific career um, and continued to follow the space program, which by then, of course, Apollo had ended. We had flown Skylab, Apollo Soyuz, and NASA at that point, we're now in the mid to late 1970s, NASA was developing what was then the brand new space shuttle. And uh, the thing about the space shuttle was you could have a crew of seven people, but you only needed two pilots. And that's what really opened things up for scientists, engineers, medical doctors. So, you know, I was happy working as an astronomer, um, you know, getting ready to look for a position as a professor somewhere in, in academia when I saw an announcement from NASA that, hey, we're looking for uh, astronauts for this new space shuttle. And by the way, uh, yes, we still want pilots, but we also want uh, scientists, engineers, medical doctors. And, uh, you know, this, this had been a dream since childhood of actually going into space. I mean, my childhood heroes, you asked who interested me, who influenced me. It was Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and Tom Corbett's Space Cadet. You know, it was these science fiction heroes that, that I thought, you know, this is really cool what these guys are doing. Um, not that I ever considered it a realistic career, because as I said, I, I was not a military pilot. But when the opportunity opened up with the space shuttle, I put in my application along with 8,000 other people, and was I was lucky enough to get selected. And, of course, that changed my life for the next 20 years. I was a NASA astronaut and ended up making five flights in the space shuttle, and, and uh, including the rescue and repair of the Hubble Space Telescope. So in the end, you know, I might say that maybe I, I did more good for astronomy by being an astronaut and fixing Hubble than I ever would have done if I had remained a professional astronomer but there you are you never know where life is going to take you i was very fortunate to have had an opportunity and took advantage of it and uh, and here we are it's it's i mean you know you've just summarized you know you've just summarized so much so much in that that we have to we have to I have to go back and unpack a lot of it but it's it's an it is an incredible trajectory that you had so um if we go all the way back so when you were young and you you saw sputnik what what was that like, you know, because as you say, you were reading comments like Flash Gordon and and all these um, science fiction. And then it, it actually was happening uh, in real time uh, around you when when Sputnik launched. What 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 was that like on the ground? Like what, what were the kind of conversations or how did, did it suddenly go from becoming something tangible for you observing that happen well, around you? Two aspects of, of Sputnik. First of all. We were in the middle of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. And, and one of the reasons why uh, the, the space technology and, and human spaceflight advanced so rapidly, it, it became kind of a, a, um, an ersatz or, or a proxy for a real war, which, you know, is much better to compete by sending you know, who's going to be the first one to launch a satellite, who's going to be the first person to send a, a people into space, 
who's going to be the first to the moon. I mean, we never would have had an Apollo program without the Cold War. Sputnik an incredible shock. It was one of the best things that ever happened to the American educational system because, you know, it, it led to a lot of uh, support for, for better mathematics and science teaching and uh, financial support. I mean, I, I was supported in graduate school by the National Science Foundation, um, and, and that started partly because of Sputnik. But then also, of course, there was the personal adventure of going out to the, our high school football field. My, my dad took a few friends and, and me out there. And of course, all the newspapers would publish, when, here's when Sputnik is going to fly over. And you know, one of my friends was an amateur radio operator, and he actually received the beep, beep, beep from Sputnik and got his picture in the local newspaper. I mean, it was... Nowadays, nobody pays any attention when satellites fly over. You see them all the time. But to go out there and see this thing moving across the sky, and it was going really fast, and it wasn't blinking like an airplane. So, you know, there really was something new under the sun, and, and that was incredibly exciting. Of course, I, I, you know, I was only in, in middle school at the time, but I still understood enough to understand what it meant to be in orbit around the Earth and you know, why you needed rockets to get up above the atmosphere and so on. So it was definitely motivating that we, we knew this. For me, space exploration was the future. It represented the future. And that's one reason why I was so excited about it. Yeah, yeah. And Jeff, the the um, the telescope that you talked about, um, were there many astronomers in your life, like to make the steps for you to to study that and go on to do a PhD, um, I mean, I, I presume like your family were supportive of you, but was it was it an was it an easy thing for you to imagine, or um, uh, or was it a, was it a massive leap? It, it was very interesting because as an undergraduate, uh, I, I did do a, a degree in astronomy and physics, but the the astronomers at the universities where, where I was studying, I mean, they were, they were doing kind of classical astronomy, uh, studying double stars. And I think there was one person doing radio astronomy, but nobody was thinking about high energy astrophysics at the time. Um, I mean, some people were in other places, but it, it was, I, I, I still though, uh, had read enough. And, and, and when I was looking for graduate school, um, there was a group at Harvard University that was flying uh, telescopes up in balloons to look at uh, gamma rays. And, and again, for me, the, this was, was new and exciting. And, and so that was one of the reasons why that's where I went and I joined that group. And um, from gamma rays, uh, I went, while I was a graduate student, um, Ken Pounds, who was the professor who led the X-ray astronomy group at Leicester University, uh, came over to Cambridge, Massachusetts to spend summers, and, uh, and I had met him. And uh, he was a very personable guy. And, and when I finished my graduate study, I had a fellowship that allowed me to go for a year and study anywhere in the world. Uh, so I contacted Ken and, and he said, yeah, come on over to Leicester. And, and I did. And, and um, I, I was a little bit concerned that, uh, you know, my impression of English universities were 
pictures of the Oxford Dons and everybody. Yeah, like Hogwarts kind of places, yeah. <laughs> but our group at Leicester, I mean, maybe it was the American influence that Ken had picked up, but, uh, you know, everybody was on first name basis and uh, it was very informal and, and it was a very friendly group, but it was, from a scientific point of view, absolutely world class. And uh, so it was a great experience. Um, and that's really what started my astronomy career. And um, I, I owe a great, uh, you know, thanks to not only Ken, but the technicians and, and my fellow scientists uh, at Leicester who uh, really helped me get started. Yeah. And then before we move on then to your, to your um, astronaut career, um, uh, were you always a curious child? Was, was, was science um, very easy for you? Did you grow up in an environment where that was encouraged or were you different? How, what was that like? No, I was very fortunate. I mean, my, my parents were both well-educated. We, we had, a, you know, we were always reading books, um, talking about new discoveries. And, and so, uh, it, I mean, it, it was really expected that I was going to do well in school. I mean, they recognized that I was basically intelligent. I always liked to work. I never had a problem getting my homework done. Uh, I, I was pretty easy to raise. I mean, they never had to pay attention <laughs> to whether I was, uh, you know, doing something else but other than my schoolwork. And, uh, and I, I always got encouragement. Um, I, I always remember when I announced to my parents that I was applying to be an astronaut, first thing my mother said was, oh, that's too dangerous, which we all worried. But my father basically said, yeah, that makes sense because he knew my personality, because not only was I interested in scientific things, but, you know, physically, I was, I was always, you know, I, I, I skied, I climbed mountains, um, and, and I was always looking for new challenges, and, and the idea of actually becoming an astronaut and going up into space, of course, at that point, it was just a dream. It was, um, you know, the chance of actually getting selected is is pretty small. But nevertheless, if you don't try, you're never going to have a chance. And, and so I tried. And fortunately, I was one of the lucky people who did get selected. What do you think were your um, what do you think that it, that you have that set you apart from so many of the other thousands of applicants? Well, uh, of course, from a a technical point of view, I, I had the right qualifications. I mean, I had excellent marks in school. I, I had experience with um, space activities. Um, I worked in a laboratory, you know, flying balloons and sounding rockets. I'd gotten my hands dirty with electronics. I could work computers. But, you know, so did hundreds of other people. I also had some good stories to tell. You know, one of the most critical parts of the astronaut selection process is the personal interview. And um, I've been on astronaut selection panels and I know how difficult it is because so many qualified people come in and we interview them. And at the end of the day, you sort of look through, you know, gee, who have we talked to today? Um, who do we want to carry through to the next round of, of selection? And um, as, as I said, I, I had some good stories to tell. Uh, some of them actually came from my experience back uh, as a student when I was doing mountaineering and sport parachuting. I had 
you know, one instant, instance where uh, my parachute didn't open properly and I had to make a, a very quick decision. Should I take a chance and ride it down to the ground and risk breaking my leg or should I cut it away and count on my reserve parachute opening, which is in fact what I did and, and it worked. Otherwise, <laughs> I wouldn't have been there to tell the story. <laughs> and then over in Leicester, um, I actually got involved with, uh, I, I had learned uh, back at Harvard, I, I had learned uh, from a, a wonderful professor there, Francis Wright, who had been teaching celestial navigation to generations of students ever since the Second World War. And as an astronomer, I had always been fascinated by the idea of using the stars for navigation. It, it seemed like the one useful thing that you could really do with astronomy. <laughs> and, and, and I also liked sailing. And, and so, uh, you know, the, a friend of, of one of the, uh, my technician friends at Leicester uh, actually uh, had purchased a 110-foot uh, old Norwegian coastal steamer, the Stavanes. And um, when I mentioned that I knew how to navigate, I uh, got taken on as the ship's navigator. And we had various uh, trips over to um, the Netherlands, uh, a beautiful trip to the Norwegian fjords. And so I had some good stories to tell and keep the, uh, you know, the astronaut selection panel amused and interested. And so I, I assume that uh, at the end of the week, uh, when they were doing their review, oh yeah, that that guy with the parachutes and the and the ocean is uh, yeah, I remember him. Uh, he seemed pretty good. That's you know you'd to go any deeper than that, you'd have to ask the selection panel. Yeah, but still, I think it is that thing though. I mean, like I'm I'm getting a sense from you. You know, you, you're somebody that's that always was just curious, and you just sort of you know embraced life. If you're interested in something, you just pursued it. There was. There was nothing really that kind of got in your way. Anytime I get a chance for a, a new experience, um, almost always I'll take advantage of it. I mean, life is short and uh, the more of it you can experience, the richer your life is. I've been very fortunate. I've, I've gotten to do a lot of different things. Yeah, but but it's essentially. I think it's. I think it's also a way of life that kind of gets you to do the interesting things in a way. They, it's sort of like a self fulfilling prophecy. Well, yeah. I mean, you you can talk about luck, um, and I've certainly been luck uh, lucky in the sense that uh, I've had many opportunities. But you know, part of being lucky is to rep recognize when an opportunity presents itself and then take advantage of the opportunity. Uh, you know, how many opportunities pass by that people never realize. And, and then they say, you know, why, why am I not so lucky? And, and um, so, yeah, you always have to be on the lookout for, are there things that I could do that, that I haven't done yet and, and then take advantage of it. And of course, I have built up over the years, a skill set where a lot of these opportunities were technical. And I had the technical background where I could take advantage of them. Yeah, but you were doing it for the love of it. You know, you, I don't think, you know, I think sometimes the message with astronaut selection is that people do things because it's kind of, it's 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 another thing to tick off a box, but it's very genuine and very sincere from you that you're just a curious person and you just embrace life and you have this, you know, you just devour information and, and you embrace oh, that I, kind of absolutely. lifelong learning. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times 
you know, students will come up to me and say, you know, I really want to be an astronaut. Um, should I learn how to fly an airplane? And, and my answer is, you know, look, you know how many tens of thousands of people apply to be astronauts and, and no matter how qualified you are, the chance of getting selected is pretty small. If you and and frankly, learning how to fly, it's a big investment in time and money. Look, if you want to learn how to fly, it's great. Go do it. But don't do it just because you think it'll help you be an astronaut. The same thing. You know, I didn't jump out of airplanes because I wanted to be an astronaut. I jumped out of airplanes because I wanted to know what it was like falling through the air. And and it (laughs) it was it was a lot of fun. And, and I kept doing it. But, uh, you know, who knows? It, as I said, it gave me a really nice story to tell when I went in for my astronaut selection. But I did it because I loved it. I think that's I think that's essentially it. I think I think if you're if you're kind of it's it's like it's never about the destination. It's always about the journey, you know, and, and as you say, like if you embrace your life, who knows? where you're going to go, but you're going to have a great time along the way. And, and as you say, you're just aware of opportunities as they arise, you know? So you, yeah, and you, if you enjoy flying an airplane, exactly, or do it. airplanes, even if you don't get selected as an astronaut, you're still doing something that you enjoy doing. And that's why you should be doing it. That's it. I think that's so true. It's so true. So, so Jeff, then, you know, your career um, with NASA as an astronaut on on the space shuttle program, and you know five five amazing flights, fifty days logged. Um, you know, so the very first the very first launch. Um, I I guess you know do you do you get do you ever get used to it? Does it ever become? I mean, it it can't possibly ever become. Oh yeah, here we go again. I'm sure it's very exciting, but just in your body, do you ever get used to launch? And um, I know reentry is is easier with the space shuttle compared to like the Soyuz and and how other, how some other capsules return. But but launch in particular, do you ever get used to that in your body? Well, there's two as- two things about getting used to it. First of all, there's the launch itself, which is pretty overwhelming. I mean, there's shaking and vibration. The big difference between the first flight and all the other flights is I I didn't know what to expect. I mean, people told me, look imagine as much vibration and noise as you possibly can and it's going to be more than that and sure enough they were right i mean there was so much shaking and vibration the the first two minutes of the shuttle because you have those two big solid rockets burning and there's a tremendous amount of turbulence inside them so you're really shaking uh and at, at one point particularly about a minute into the flight you go through the sound barrier and, and it shakes even more. And I, I thought to myself, this, this can't be normal. I mean, it, uh, the wings are going to fall off or something like that. But of course, I mean, intellectually, I knew that the shuttle had flown a few times before and the wings never fell off. And so probably they weren't going to fall off this time. And sure enough, they didn't. Um, all of my other four flights, I mean, it was just as violent, but I knew what to expect. What was what I was really curious about, though, um, you know, my first flight actually turned out it was it was a, a remarkable flight because originally we the flight was um, well. First of all, I should mention that I was originally supposed to fly in June of 1984 with a particular payload. But back in those days, flights kept getting canceled and crews got moved from one flight to another and. 
we got moved from that flight to another flight to another flight. And finally, on the fourth time, we finally launched in April of 85 with a completely different flight where we were just supposed to launch two satellites and then come home. But one of those satellites didn't turn on. And it turned out there was a little switch on the outside of the satellite, which was the only thing that we had access to. And NASA decided, uh, no, you know, nobody really thought that they were going to go ahead and do this, but they decided to uh, send my partner and me out on an unplanned spacewalk. The first time in NASA's history that they had ever done an unplanned, what we call a contingency spacewalk. Uh, in an attempt to fix the the satellite, and and that really changed my life because, I mean, again, you talk about getting lucky uh, and taking advantage of it, but I did a good job, and you know, people told me when I got back, hey, hey, you look good in a spacesuit, and and after that, I started getting assigned to developing new spacesuits, and and became one of the uh, EVA or spacewalking. Um, cadre in the office. And so when it was time to choose a crew for the Hubble space mission, and they said, well, only people who have done spacewalks before can do spacewalks for Hubble because it was so critical. And I was lucky to get selected, but going back to my first flight. So we ended up staying in space for seven days and I got pretty used to zero gravity and floating around. Then my next flight was supposed to be in March of 1986, which was an astronomy flight. We were taking several ultraviolet telescopes up. That would have been the very next flight after the Challenger disaster. And so, uh, I mean, that, tragically, I mean, we were, we were close to the crew because we were the very next flight. We knew them all personally and their families. That's a whole other story. But all the flights were canceled, and I didn't fly again until December of 1990, so uh, five and a half years later. And I wondered, would I still remember what it was like floating around in space? And amazingly, the first day I was up in space on my second flight, it felt like the eighth day of my first flight. My body really remembered what it was like, and that was that was a wonderful feeling. Um, after you come down, do you... Does the sense like if you're asleep with 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 that feeling of that sensation of microgravity when you're there, do you um, when when you're asleep, do you do you sometimes think you're still floating in, in wish, the space shuttle? I wish you wish. Yeah. One, one of my one of my friends who had been on a flight before my first flight told me, hey, look, Jeff, the <laughs> first night that you go to sleep, lie very quietly on your bed and don't move. And if you're really lucky, you'll get a sense that you're floating again, that you're back in space and, and do it the first night because it's never going to come back. And he was right. Um, I, I did have that experience. And unfortunately, it, it doesn't come. I wish I could recreate that feeling because the feeling of weightlessness is it, it's, it's a whole new dimension of existence. It's I remember talking about it once. I was at a conference in Paris. It was a combination of science and philosophy. And there was a Jesuit priest there. And I was talking about the wonder of weightlessness and the, the sense of freedom of the human body that, that you never experience anywhere else. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, 
you know, in theology, we would call that a state of grace. And that's what it sounded like to him that I was describing. And everybody who comes back, uh, you know, we share that experience. It's, it's, uh, and and I'm I'm delighted now that more and more people are going to have a chance to share that because it's 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 a whole new experience for for human consciousness that um, it, it it really makes made me realize um, you know if if this is such a new experience you know there there are so many other things that the human mind and body are potentially capable of and. Uh, of course, that that went along with my desire for new experiences. You know, anybody who goes scuba diving for the first time or skydiving for the first time again, it's a it's a totally new experience and and exciting. But going into space and being weightless is maybe an order of magnitude more extraordinary than any of those things. Yeah, I I um I did a, a parabolic flight in in Moscow about four four years ago, and you know you only have thirty or forty seconds of weightlessness, and and I you were describing it yesterday in in the lectures. It's still, it, it changes. It's still your brilliant. It's, of what it's brilliant. Is like yeah, and, it really is fantastic. It was very confusing. I kept holding on to the bar, and it was only that night I went, "Why did I hold on to the bar?" Um, but the you you immediately want to move your body because you you. It just moves in a completely different way. And I just never stopped laughing. I just couldn't stop laughing the whole time it was happening because it was so like that. It was very liberating. And you're right. You're you you're communicating with your body in a in a completely new way. And um, I can only imagine what it's like if you get to do that for a sustained period of time. What what you what you find out what your body is capable of. And of course, for people who are in pain or who have um you know, who have muscular problems or whatever, I can only imagine that all that pressure of gravity is just gone. I've been on, of course, they, they had that incredible flight where they took Stephen Hawking on the panel. Yes. Flight, and he yeah. said it was the most extraordinary, liberating experience of his life, you know, after being confined to a wheelchair for decades. And actually, I, there's a um, organization in, in the U.S. now which is promoting and has actually carried out parabolic flights for people specifically with physical disabilities. My last parabolic flight, um, I flew with a blind person and she was very, you know, we were very interested. How would she be able to orient herself in space without being able to see? Because, you know, all of your internal organs, which tell you what's up and down, don't work anymore. And, and she said it was a <laughs> absolute, well, again, a totally unique experience, but um, she said she felt more lost than she had ever felt in her entire life because she, uh, of course, she was used to not being able to see, but she had gotten so used to, you know, the feeling of the ground under her feet and, you know, the vestibular organs in your inner ear. And, and when that went away, um, it, it was, um, and she didn't have the sense of vision that most of us do to orient ourselves. And, and so I can imagine that it was a remarkably uh, disorienting experience. That's incredible, isn't it? <clears throat> because I guess for her, it's like, um, you know, gravity for her is like her, her compass. Gosh, that's amazing. But and, she loved it, by the way. She, she oh, yeah. said, yes, it was very disoriented, but, but uh, you know, she'd do it again in a heartbeat. 
And so you were fine. You didn't get any sinus problems or headaches or your stomach was okay. Or how did you? you I was quite fortunate. You know, I don't have a very strong stomach for, you know, going up in the the NASA jets and we'd go out and and do aerobatics. And I I often get, you know, air sick when when we started doing aileron rolls for five minutes at a time. Uh, it, It turns out that there is no correlation between susceptibility to air sickness, sea sickness on the, on the earth and, and space sickness. Um, I've seen, you know, what we call iron bellied pilots who can go up and do aileron rolls all day and they go up in space and get sick as a dog. But on the other hand, it's not anti-correlated. I mean, there's plenty of people who get sick on the ground and they get sick in space or who don't get sick and, and so on. But the nice thing is almost everybody uh, gets over that feeling of, of space sickness after, you know, one or two days. And almost everybody who comes back will tell you that the experience of weightlessness, you know, they forget about the first day or two where they were accommodating. And, and what they remember is is the joyous feeling of, of freedom, of being able to move around in a way that you've never been able to do before. I mean... You push off the wall and you're Superman flying <laughs> through the air. You know, I, I showed a picture to my 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 two sons who were little little kids at the time. Uh, you know, a picture on a, from a parabolic flight. Oh look, there's Daddy flying through the air like Superman. <laughs> it was great. I wish I had a cape. Yeah, of course. And you know, it's lovely. I was at um, I was at the Astronautical Congress in 2019, and you know, there's these filmmakers called Felix and Paul Studios, and they're working very closely with NASA to create. Um, you know, uh, a very visual experiences. I think they're actually going to be filming the launch, the Artemis launch when it happens. But they but they had on display like a, a limited about three minutes of um, work that they had done with uh, 360 cameras to create what it felt like on the International Space Station. And you really felt that you were floating. I mean, so I hope that with VR, you know, with virtual reality, while not everybody can afford it, I think to have that sensation in your body, even if it's even if it's even if it's kind of simulated with VR, I think it can give people that state of grace that maybe you talked about, which would be great. I, I actually, I, I, my last parabolic flight uh, that I was just mentioning, I actually was doing an experiment using virtual reality. And um, I actually was looking at a scene of floating through the space station while I was floating for 20 seconds <laughs> in the parabolic plane and it was remarkable how that brought back to me the feeling that really being in space, I mean, even more so than, than just floating in the parabolic airplane, the combination of the visual uh, sense, it was, it was extraordinary. Yeah. So, Jeff, we, we have to talk about, you know, your, your mission um, to repair the Hubble because it's exceptional of different reasons i mean for i think is it still is it still the record for you know um orbiting um as far far at the furthest away um on a mission or or did inspiration for no they went they went they, they went, went further, further. Out. yeah we, we went as far up as the shuttle was capable of doing uh we wanted uh, to put hubble as high up above the earth as possible to get it above as much of the atmosphere as we could 
so that it didn't interfere with its pointing capability. But but that was it's as about high eight, as it's yeah, it was about eight eight hundred miles orbit was it? Uh, eight, no, eight, it was about six hundred kilometers. Six hundred miles. Six hundred kilometers. Four hundred miles. miles. So you were what was? I mean, I've you've you've. I mean, I've asked you all that every time I think I'm at I'm at a, a session where you talk. I always ask you to share your experiences of it because it's very different from from um you know the the missions of people that are in you know a lower earth orbit around 300 kilometers because of course you're more exposed to cosmic rays and any sort of solar storms yeah, and stuff we, that happen. we got about 10 times the radiation of a normal shuttle crew i mean nothing nothing that was dangerous but they did put special radiation monitors on us because we were you know sort of scratching the surface of the inner van allen radiation belts I've actually been been fortunate in that respect because I was on the highest shuttle flight, which was Hubble. Um, on my third flight, which was the one just before Hubble, the last two days of the flight, we took the shuttle down as low as it could go and still stay in orbit because they wanted to study the interaction of atomic oxygen with the skin of the shuttle. And what it did was it interacts with the, the the skin of the shuttle and and causes the entire shuttle to glow. It was the most extraordinary thing. I mean, it was it was like sort of like St. Elmo's fire, but over the entire shuttle. I mean, the wings, the the tails, everything was glowing bright orange. It, it was it was surrealistic. So yeah, I've been as high and as low as the shuttle could go. I was I was very fortunate. And and your your EVA or your spacewalk to repair the Hubble, what what was what was that like? What what do you remember most about that? that well, day? The, uh, everybody knows about the optical problems that, yes. had that we went to fix, but actually there were about a dozen things that that had to be fixed. There, there was also a problem with the solar arrays. Um, there were the two magnetometers uh, had both failed. Um, and then a bunch of electronic boxes were having problems or had actually failed. So there were so many things to do that when they actually set out to do a timeline, they realized it was going to take five days of spacewalking, which we had never done before. And of course, the shuttle could only stay up for about 11 days, which meant we had to do them one day after the other. Exhausting, I'd say. We had four spacewalkers rather than the normal two. So we had two teams so that you didn't have to go out two days in a row. I think we could have if we had had to, because we trained, we cross-trained with, with the other teams so that if, if any one spacesuit was having a problem or if they got sick or something, we could, we could fill in for one another. But as it was, uh, my partner, Story Musgrave, and I would, went out on days one, three, and five, and then Tom Akers and Kathy Thornton went out on days two and four, and... It was such a complex mission. There, there were many people who, who really thought that NASA had bitten off more than they could chew, so to speak. And that, you know, I, because I still have a lot of friends in the astronomy community, I was constantly, as we were training for the flight, I, you know, I'd get a call from an old astronomer friend. Hey, Jeff, can you guys really do this? And, <laughs> you know, I said, well, you know, we're going to try. And, uh, and sure enough, it all worked. It did. It did. Um, it was... I guess the, you know, the the most gratifying moment there was when on the third day of spacewalking, when we installed the 
the new wide field camera, which had the optical corrections built in. And once we did that, we knew that no matter what else happened, hopefully Hubble would be able to see straight once again. Of course, the interesting thing was, uh, you know, I, I always remember after the fifth and final day of spacewalking, when we had, we had completed every single task that had been set out for us, plus a, a, one additional one, we had to make some special covers for the magnetometers because when we installed the new magnetometers on the third day, I noticed there was some paint peeling off and they were worried about contamination. So on the fourth day, Tom and Kathy brought in some insulating material from the uh, payload bay and we, we made special covers out of it. And then on the fifth day, Story and I installed those covers over the magnetometers. And that had never been planned beforehand. But we, when, when Story and I came in out of the airlock and we realized that, yeah, five days of spacewalking and we actually did it all. But we still didn't know whether the optical corrections, which had been designed, of course, by optical engineers and mechanical engineers, astronomers, and so on, uh, was it really going to work? And you, you couldn't turn on the, um, the instruments that we had installed for a couple of weeks because atmosphere, you know, we had launched them from the Earth and there was atmosphere that sticks to the outside and you have to wait until that atmosphere dissipates into the vacuum of space before you can turn on the high voltage. Otherwise, you'll create sparks and, and destroy your electronics. So it was, it was New Year's Eve and we were, I, I was, it was probably about one o'clock in the morning. I, we had had a party and I was cleaning up in the kitchen and the phone rang and it was an old astronomer friend from the Space Telescope Institute in Baltimore, which was running the Hubble. And after wishing each other a new year, happy new year, you know, he, he asked me if I had any champagne available and we, we had a half bottle left in the refrigerator. He said, well, pour yourself a glass because, uh, you know, he said, we're, we're really not supposed to tell anybody because NASA wanted to make a public announcement after the holiday, but they figured that somebody on the crew ought to know that they had gotten the final, the first pictures back from Hubble and it worked. And, and, you know, every, and of course, you know, everybody knows now when I when I talk about Hubble, I, I tell people at the beginning, you know, this is not a suspense story. Uh, yeah. You know how it turned out. We but do. Then we Nobody really did. How it was yeah, of course. Out. And of course, the whole the disaster of, you know, when when it was recognized that Hubble couldn't focus properly, if you didn't live through that time it's hard to remember what an absolute disaster it was for NASA, for the astronomical community. I mean, Hubble was the joke of late night comedians. It was denounced in the U.S. Congress as a techno-Turkey and, and so on. And, and uh, you know, it, had we not been able to fix it, I think the future of NASA would have been very different. I'm not sure that Congress would have approved the International Space Station and so on. But luckily, everything worked. And course the rest is history because Hubble has gone on to rewrite astronomy books many times over and and it's just you know pictures from Hubble are in school classrooms all over the world so you know, what a feeling of accomplishment to have been able to have been a part of that and and you know as both an astronomer and an astronaut 
to put my own two hands on the Hubble Space Telescope out in space. I mean, talk about the thrill of a lifetime. Wow. I, Jeff, I can't, you know, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you're, you're part of history forevermore. I mean, those images as you say, inspired so many people, um, myself included, and and they're deeply philosophical images. They're not just like, they go beyond astronomy. They go beyond the science of astrophysics. Oh, the they they inspire. Absolutely. Of the birth of stars. I mean, let there be light. It's biblical. It's biblical. It really is. And and they, they touch people in ways that we, I think we can't even articulate sometimes. We just know that we're looking at something that has a meaning beyond our own existence and we're, we're part of it somehow. Like there's this strong connection to those images. They're beautiful. They're just beautiful. It's incredible that you're, as you say, you touched the instrument, not only, you know, on earth, but actually as it was orbiting earth, you know, and, and then it goes on to give us so many more uh, amazing things. Um, I want to I want to ask you one one last question about Hubble, but I might ask I leave it to the end because I want to also talk about the amazing stuff that you're doing now. So not only are you were you involved in something like Hubble, but also Mars being involved in in Perseverance and the the amazing Moxie that's one of the instruments on board Mars, which is showing us that we can take carbon dioxide and turn it into oxygen. Tell us a little bit about your involvement in that and. I was very very fortunate to get involved in this program. Interestingly, the the principal investigator, it turns out, was uh, one of my graduate students when I was teaching back at MIT uh, before I went to NASA. So, you know, uh, to see your students succeed and and, and now I'm sort of working for him in a sense. I'm the the deputy principal investigator. I had never done anything with Mars. Of course, uh, you know, the space shuttle went orbit around the Earth and, um, and uh, you know, we dream of going to Mars someday as, as humans, but I had never been involved in any Mars research projects. So um, this was an incredible opportunity when uh, Mike Heck, the principal investigator, uh, came and, and he said, you know, um, we're... We're, this is an experiment to produce oxygen, which ultimately we need for human exploration of Mars. And because of the human connection, maybe I would would I be interested in in being the deputy principal investigator? And sure, I, you know this was a, an incredible opportunity. And uh, the idea is that um, not only do you need oxygen to breathe, and uh, you know, of course, if, if I went to Mars myself, I would be very happy to have oxygen to breathe, but I only need about eight or 900 grams of oxygen a day. But on the other hand, assuming that I want to come home to Earth, I need, I need a big rocket to get me off the surface of Mars, and, and you know, rockets burn fuel, and they need a lot of oxygen. In fact, three quarters of the mass of the propellant of, of most rockets is is oxygen um i reckon you know for a crew of six y- your rocket would need about 30 tons of oxygen so that's a lot more than you breathe and um to take all that oxygen all the way from the earth would be incredibly expensive now you know most of the stuff we send to mars we have to make on earth you know anything that's manufactured whether it's spacesuits or habitats or computers or whatever. I mean, we can't make those things on Mars. But dumb old oxygen, you you know, you're going to spend billions of dollars to send 30 tons of oxygen to the surface of Mars if you can make that oxygen on Mars. And that's exactly what we're doing with 
with Moxie because it turns out that Mars does have an atmosphere. It's very thin. It's about 1% of the atmosphere density here on Earth, but it does have an atmosphere which is almost entirely carbon dioxide, which is CO2. And there you go, O2, oxygen. And so what MOXIE does, it, it uses um, electrochemistry to, just like, uh, you know, in, in high school chemistry, just about everybody who takes chemistry uh, electrolyzes water. You know, you put two electrodes in water, you hook it up to a battery and voila, hydrogen bubbles up on one side and oxygen bubbles up on the other side. Well, it turns out you can electrolyze carbon dioxide just as well. Uh, it's a lot more difficult. You have to heat it up to about 800 Celsius and you have to run it over special catalysts and, and, and special type of electrolyte, but you can do it. And it had been demonstrated many times in laboratories on Earth to develop this process. But NASA has a principle that if, if you have a critical process or piece of equipment uh, that is going to be used someday in a future mission, you have to demonstrate it in its actual environment, which means you got to do it on Mars. And that was the purpose of MOXIE, was to demonstrate that Mars doesn't have any nasty surprises. And, and so what we are attempting to do is to operate MOXIE under all Martian conditions, because the Mars atmosphere is much more variable than the Earth. Just day to night, you can get a hundred degree variation in temperature. And between the summer and the spring and the winter, the density of the atmosphere can change by a, by a factor of two. So we want to operate MOXIE in all seasons and all times of day. And, and that's what we're doing so far. It's run successfully nine times. We're getting ready, I hope, and to run it a 10th time. And, and uh, it's been extremely successful. It's, it's validated the process. And I like to think that someday when, when I don't know when it's going to be, but when people finally do get to Mars, uh, they're going to have the great, great grandchild of Moxie making oxygen so they can Absolutely. get back yeah, it's terrific. It's really exciting to to prove it and to show that it is actually possible. As you say, it means that we can we can get home and also we can stay alive when we're there. It's like an essential building block. So so that's fantastic that you're involved in that. I'm aware of time and we're we're coming to the end of our of our amazing conversation. Thank you so alas, much for, for it's just been brilliant. But Jeff, one last thing. So you've been on spacewalks, and I guess I think that's probably the most freeing um um, point of view that you could have from Earth. So, you know, I, I've I've been lucky to talk to other astronauts and I've asked them that same question of what Earth looks like from a distance. But from the cupola, for most of them, few of them have had the opportunity to to describe it from an EVA. But you had the opportunity to describe it from an EVA or a spacewalk further away, but also holding on to the Hubble at the same time. Did any of that go in at that time? And and if so. Can you describe what that moment was like and what looking down on Earth as you're floating in, in space, what does that feel like in a spacesuit? Well, the, um, there's no question. I mean, the windows of the shuttle uh, were great. The cupola is great. But when you go out there in a space helmet, all of a sudden, it's the closest experience of actually being in space. I mean, to hold my hand in front of my face and realize that there's a vacuum between my nose and my fingers, 
Um, that's extraordinary. It's, it's, it's really an experience of being in space. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, to, the most extraordinary part of that was when we were up working on the magnetometers because we were on the end of the robotic arm, 15 meters, 50 feet away from the, the shuttle itself, working at the very top of the telescope. And, and I actually, the, the most extraordinary experience I had, of course, we're, we're connected to the arm or to the shuttle by a stainless steel tether wires so that, you know, we're not going to go floating away and get lost in space. But I wanted to see what it would feel like if I let go. Because <laughs> as long as you're holding on, yeah. you know, if I push or pull, I'm reacting my force and I'm part of the shuttle. And because the shuttle is so much more massive than me. And, and so, again, I'm always looking for new experiences. I'm not going to do anything stupid. Uh, you know, I, I didn't release my tether, I, I, but it, I, I set it so that it wasn't pulling on me. And, and I have to say, the first time I went to let go, I realized that I hadn't let go. There was something, <laughs> you know, deep in my psyche, which is saying, hey, you know, you're going to fall. Yeah. Down. It's a long way down. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, ultimately, the intellect triumphed and, and I did let go. And it was extraordinary. It, it truly was a psychological transformation. I was no longer part of the shuttle. I was an independent satellite floating in orbit, which from a physics point of view was absolutely true. I mean, you know, we're both going at 18,000 miles an hour around the Earth. And what was really extraordinary is I could turn my back so I couldn't see the shuttle. And, and it particularly it was at night. And so it was just me floating there. And there were the stars above and the, and the earth below. And, oh, man, I, I will never forget that, that moment. It was, it, it was a, uh, as the Jesuit priest said, it was a state of grace. It, I wish I could have stayed there for hours, but, of course... NASA doesn't send us up there so we can have existential experiences. They send us up so we can do useful work. And there was still plenty of work to do. So pretty soon I had to grab back on and, and you know, back to work. But that moment has stayed with me for the rest of my life. And, and I'll never forget it. No, and, and thank you for sharing it with us. I mean, I can see it in my mind's eye when you describe it. I can only imagine what it's like. And I hope that you dream of that because that's that's really beautiful. So from that telescope from a very young age, I, I thank that telescope in New York. And if I'm ever in New York, I'll go find it because it's amazing. The person that it inspired. And thank you so much, Jeff, for sharing just a snippet of an amazing life experience so far. And the very best of luck on, on Moxie and, and all things. And sure, I'll see you soon again, I'm sure, on the next Space Studies program. Been a pleasure talking. And uh, best wishes to all the listeners. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humans of Space podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, head to skynightmagazine.com or search for us on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or your usual podcast provider.